The following message was given by Jeff Shinella, a pastoral intern at Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. I don't know how many of you have been a part of a, or been involved in helping to start a a church, a church plant, Uh, but I am told that this isn't everyone's experience. Um, I think that we really are witnessing something incredible, Um, something that the Lord has been building. Because I know that Nick and Tom and Luke, they are doing wonderful jobs. I get to be witness to that all the time. And the individuals, the families who have just been serving this church heroically, I think of you know, our deacons, our hospitality team, you know, people who are involved in setup and teardown and children's and youth and now young adult ministries and we've got worship, sound, multimedia. There's just dozens of people who are pouring out their time and their effort um, like a sacrifice, a sacrifice of praise to our God. And I believe that every single one of them, if you ask them, would tell you the same thing. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. Not to us. We, we don't deserve the credit and the praise for what's happening here. This isn't about us. It is about him. So he is our shepherd. We are the sheep. He is the master. We're the servants. He is the builder. He is the author. He is the potter. And we are the clay. So we praise him for everything that he has built in this place. And we say, along with Paul, who wrote to Timothy, that he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That's a big view of God. I mean, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the only sovereign. And that's a word that we don't use a whole lot these days, that not everyone is probably too familiar um, with. But what it means is that he is the only ruler. It's expressing his might and authority. Eternal dominion, absolute authority is his alone. It's God's alone like we heard a few weeks ago from Nick, that not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from him. God is on the throne, and nothing happens outside of his reign. Now, as I considered these things, I couldn't help but think of earthly kings, you know, the history of empires and kingdoms, monarchies, how different the world once was. Uh, And even though government has changed a lot over the ages, I don't think we're ever going to be fully satisfied with it. Um, but that brings me to an important historical moment. On June 15th, 1215, that's more than 500 years before the American Revolution, King John of England signed what is now considered the foundation of individual rights in the Western world. You may have heard of it. It's called the Magna Carta. Effectively, what the Magna Carta did was it limited the power of the king. It declared that the sovereign ruler of England was himself subject to the laws of the land. The king was no longer above the law, but limited. He was limited in things like how much taxes he could demand of the nobles. He was obligated to provide due process. He had to provide competent royal officials, and it even guaranteed the rights and the freedoms of the church which 
You know, all of that sounds pretty nice, right? (laughs) But why would the man that history knows as bad King John, whom you might remember as that greedy, sniveling uh, Prince John, the antagonist of Robin Hood, do something like that? Well, it probably wasn't out of the kindness of his heart because Prince John did, in fact, succeed his much more popular older brother, King Richard the Lionheart. That was in 1199. And by this point in his reign, you know, 15 years later, King John was getting very desperate. Having waged a costly and unsuccessful war with France, all the while demanding more and more taxes from his kingdom's nobles, he was facing the threat of rebellion, civil war, and there were even rumors going around that there was an assassination plot. But whatever forced his hand, it was an important day in Western civilization. Uh, Never mind the fact that the the Pope would annul the document a few months later and the rebellion would happen anyways. The Magna Carta has since become known as the foundation of the freedom of the individual against the arbitrary authority of the despot. And it is viewed by many as a crucial step on the path toward democracy, like a, a grandfather, if you will, of our own constitution. So why bring up the Magna Carta on a Sunday morning? Uh, Well, I think history is fun. That's one reason. But secondly, and more importantly, because it helps us to understand something about ourselves, about our worldview, and I hope ultimately about God. Because I could be wrong, but I don't think anyone in this room has ever been the subject of an earthly king. I don't know where everybody is from, but I don't think that's the case. Most of us are the great-great-great-grandchildren of a revolution that rejected the monarchy for a government of the people and by the people and for the people. And as such, we have to recognize how this heritage shapes our assumptions. It shapes our preferences. It shapes what feels right and true to us. It's like the philosophical baggage that we all carry because of where we're from. The reality, though, is that the majority of Christians and the majority of humans throughout the ages have lived and have died under a sovereign ruler, a king or queen or some kind of leader whose word was final. They assumed that an unquestionable authority reigned over them. That was their normal. But that is not us. We assume individual liberty. We cherish personal choice, freedom, and generally we distrust authority, struggling to even agree who has it, where it comes from, and pretty much dismissing it whenever we feel like it. And for that reason, the sovereignty of God, the topic of sovereignty, can be a stumbling block for us. It can make us pretty uncomfortable. So my text today is Matthew 11, 25 through 27, and it it touches on this very thing, the sovereignty of God over all things, including his saving grace. And we're going to walk through this passage and see that God is indeed sovereign over all, and that that is a good thing, that that is good news for you and me. But if you would, take a moment and pray with me, and then we'll, we'll read our passage. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this opportunity. 
Thank you for being with me. I know that you have promised you are with me, that you are with us all. And I pray for your spirit's guidance as I try to tackle um, this topic, as I try to be true to your word, as I um, want to serve these people, Lord. We, we want all of us to be equipped with the truth of your word so that we can face whatever life has to throw at us. And I pray that the things I say would be guided by your spirit and that anything I say that is not would be immediately forgotten. So be with me, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Matthew 11, starting in verse 25. Should be up there. All right. At that time, Jesus declared. Lost my place. (laughs) At that time, Jesus declared it. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This is the word of the Lord. So our passage begins with Jesus declaring, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Lord of heaven and earth. The sovereignty of God is so pervasive in the scriptures that at times we can really just gloss right over it. The the word Lord is used hundreds of times in the Bible. It was and still is one of the most common ways that we refer to God. He is Lord. He is our Lord. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And this is an expression of his sovereignty, his rule and authority over all things. The Greek word that's used here is kurios. I think I said that right, kurios. And it refers to one with power and authority. As one lexicon puts it, he to whom a person or thing belongs, about which he has the power of deciding, or master. It's a word that Christians are pretty comfortable with. We kind of just treat it like another name for God or a title for him. But when was the last time that you heard someone outside of the church referring to anyone as Lord? Maybe it was the Renaissance Fair or medieval times, but for most people, it's just archaic, a completely foreign concept, and probably not a very popular one. Like I said, individual liberty doesn't really jive with the idea of somebody being your Lord. And just because people in the church are familiar and comfortable with using that title doesn't necessarily mean that we're embracing the meaning behind it either. When was the last time you consciously equated your use of Lord with Master? I don't hear a lot of prayers beginning with master. And I'm not saying that we should be doing that. But that is who he is. He is our ruler, our master, who has absolute authority over us. And it's why Paul and the other disciples would often refer to themselves as servants, servants of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because he's the master and they are the servants. And again, what I want us to see apart from just the fact that that is true, is that it's good. 
It's a good thing. The sovereign rule of God is a good thing. Because I don't think that anyone is really missing the days of kings and monarchies, of men who were above the law and who, you know, every whim of theirs, whether it was crazy or cruel, was just to be obeyed unquestionably. The, the Magna Carta was also a good thing. Unless, of course, you were a king or someone who uniquely benefited from his reign and authority. Maybe you know what it's like to have powerful connections. There was a time when I did too, sort of. Um, growing up, my mom was a bit protective. Uh, she wasn't too crazy, you know, there's the helicopter parents and things like that. But she liked to keep an eye on us, and so when I went off to school, so did she. In elementary school, she was, uh, I think they called it like a recess attendant, you know, watching over the lunchroom and the playground, making sure that everyone was behaving, that no one was picking on her son um, or cheating. You know, there's another person in this room who was there, he knows. And by the time I made it to high school, she actually started working in the principal's office. <laughs> tracking attendance and disciplinary matters. So having your mom at school is a bit of a double-edged sword, um, but it does have its advantages. I wasn't gonna be getting away with anything unless she was the one behind it. Now, I think in general that schools are more strict these days about a lot of things, you know, like attendance and truancy and what counts as an excused absence, but if your mom thinks you need a haircut and schedules it, you know, during the school day, I think you should be, you know, have a legitimate excuse for missing a class or two. Um, and my point really is that we don't mind authority figures as much when they're on our side. You know, when we get to experience that benefit. And for the Christian, that could not be more true of the Lord of heaven and earth. We embrace his sovereign rule and we praise him for it. We take comfort in it because it means only good for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. No one at all. In the same breath, Jesus calls him Father and Lord. And I love that. He is both our ruler and our loving protector. He is both our master and our provider. Because the fear of the Lord is a right response to his holiness and his authority and his power. But he loves us and he cares for us, so we love him. Church, he is so good, he is so for you, that there is no reason for you to want anything to be outside of his control. I assure you, I assure you that you want our Heavenly Father to be sovereign. But now let's Let's consider a little more specifically from our text just how it sheds light on the sovereignty of God. So back to verses 25 through 26. It says, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So what is it that God has hidden if you remember from last week, Nick walked us through verses 1 through 24 of this chapter, and we saw that many of the people 
in those places that had the privilege of witnessing more of Christ's work than anywhere else, more of his miracles, more of his teachings, he spent more time there, they stubbornly refused to believe. What is hidden from these, the wise and understanding, was the significance of Christ's work, the meaning of it all, which is that John the Baptist was right. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the long-awaited Messiah is here. But they would not believe. They could not see it. And the reason that Jesus gives for their blindness is that the Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, had hidden it from them. The truth was hidden from some, the wise and understanding, and it was revealed to some, the little children. And then Jesus says, Father, for such was your gracious will. It was as God willed it to be. What do we make of that? I want us to recognize two things, but we'll dive a little deeper into the second one. So first, the first thing that this passage is doing is confirming something about God's character that we see repeatedly in the scriptures. See if you can pick it up from these verses that I'm about to read. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The wise and understanding that Jesus is referring to are the proud. Those who think highly of themselves, the self-sufficient, who balk at the lordship and provision of God. These are the wise in their own eyes. We don't have time really to dig into the difference between uh, worldly wisdom, those who think they're wise, and the wisdom of God. But when you have a second, read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and you'll get a really good sense of what I'm talking about. But so we have God on one side opposing those who are proud, but as we just heard, he gives grace to the humble. The little children are the humble. They are the lowly in spirit. Later in Matthew 18, we'll see Jesus actually bring a child before his disciples, and then he'll say, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, in our passage, we're not talking about literal children in our text. We're talking about those who recognize their need and are not ashamed of it. A perfect example of the difference between these two types of people can be found in Luke chapter 7. You probably remember this, uh, this story. It's the time when a Pharisee has invited Jesus over for dinner. And while they're there, a woman from town who, quote, lived a sinful life shows up and she has a jar of perfume. She begins weeping at Jesus' feet, wetting them with her tears and wiping them with her hair, kissing them 
repeatedly. And then she anoints them with the costly perfume. We see in the passage the Pharisee is thinking to himself, well, if this man were really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. And presumably, he's saying that because then, well, Jesus would have nothing to do with her, just like me. But Jesus knows exactly what kind of woman she is. And knowing exactly what kind of man this Pharisee is, he explains the difference between them. I came into your house. You did not give me water, any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her, hair, with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Essentially, Jesus is telling this Pharisee, you think you are righteous, and she is sinful. But the real difference is that she loves me for forgiving her sins, and you would just rather pretend that you don't need any forgiveness. The Pharisee is the wise and understanding, and she is the little child. So, one thing that we're seeing in our passage that you know, Nick alluded to last week is God passing judgment on the proud. And that is therefore an affirmation of an important and really basic biblical truth, which is that we are responsible for our sins. We are responsible if we pridefully reject Christ and his offer of salvation. And yet, that is not the only thing that we see. And I don't even think it's the main thing in this text. The second thing we see is Jesus praising the Father for his sovereign choice over whom he saves. For some, God chooses as an expression of sovereign judgment to hide the truth that leads to salvation. And for some, God chooses as an expression of sovereign grace to reveal that truth. This is God's sovereignty over salvation, and Jesus praises him for it. Now, much, much smarter Christians for thousands of years have been pondering this truth, have been studying these scriptures, have written volumes, libraries worth of books on this topic, on this doctrine, and I just have a few minutes to shed some light on what really is one of the most challenging truths of scripture. So I would just ask you to pray for me, <laughs> to be nice, um, and please know that, you know, I'm very aware that this is a doctrine that can stir up all sorts of difficult thoughts, feelings, questions, um, and if it's something that you struggle with, as, as Nick even admitted last week, I believe, that it was something he struggled with, <laughs> um, and if it's something that you're not sure about, you know, you're not alone in that. This, this message can really be just the beginning of a conversation that we'd be happy to continue with you. So, any number of good, really good, honest questions can be raised as we try to navigate this teaching. And I certainly can't address them all, but I think it would be helpful to move forward with specific questions in mind. So, I will have four. Question one is, what does it mean 
that God chooses who he saves. In John 6, 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 6 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. The Bible tells us that before you were born, before the world itself was created, he set his love upon you and chose to save you by grace as a gift, as an absolute gift. This has nothing to do with you deserving it. The Bible does not say that God ran the numbers ahead of time and saw that you, know, you were going to be a good egg or that if you were just given the right chance, you, know, you would do the right thing, you would believe. It doesn't say that. It says that it was his will to choose you in love to the praise of his grace. That's what we were singing about in our very first song. So that we would be utterly astounded by his grace that we don't deserve. And then he drew you to himself. Your faith in Christ, through which you are saved, you are saved by faith, is a gift and the reason that you ever repented of your sins is because he revealed to your heart that the gospel is true, that he was pierced for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities, that the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. If that resonates in your heart, you can thank God for it. He drew you to himself. Question two, so if God chooses who is saved, do our choices even matter? Well, I touched on this earlier, but yes, the Bible absolutely affirms that we not only make choices, we all make real choices, but that they matter. Deuteronomy 30.19, this is Moses speaking. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. Choose life. In Matthew 23, 37, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing Jerusalem here represents all of Israel. The ones that he commanded through Moses to choose life, the ones he delivered time and time again from their enemies, that he sent prophet after prophet to, to call them back from idolatry and rebellion. Jesus says that God wanted to wrap his arms around them, to care for them, to protect them, to save them. But they were not willing. He, they rejected his love. The Bible affirms that our choices are both real 
and have real consequences. And yet, God is still sovereign over those choices. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Question three. Does God desire all to be saved? Well, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And Ezekiel 18.23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord? And not rather that he would turn away, turn from his way and live. See, the Bible affirms two things pretty clearly. One is that God does desire that all sinners be saved. And two, that God chooses some sinners from before the foundation of the world to be saved. And only they will genuinely respond to the gospel. Challenge for us is to make sense of these two truths in a way that does justice to what God has revealed about himself. You have heard, you have heard me say this before, that the Bible, that, that God has not revealed everything about himself or his ways, but he has revealed everything that we need to know. So there are aspects of God that are fairly easy for us to accept, even though they are a profound mystery that we don't understand. For example, God has always existed. He's never not existed. That is part of his nature. No one created God. He has always been. Well, that's very perplexing for finite created beings like you and me to comprehend. We affirm it. We do not understand it. Here's another example. Did you know that multitasking is a myth? It might be the most controversial thing I've said all day. In a Harvard Business Review article titled, You Can't Multitask, So Stop Trying, the author writes, we have a brain with billions of neurons and, tr- and many trillions of connections, but we seem incapable of doing multiple things at the same time. Sadly, multitasking does not exist, at least not as we think about it. And before all the self-proclaimed multitaskers cry foul, yes, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. You can drive and apply makeup. But the fact is that the human brain is unable to give high-level attention and thought to more than one thing at a time. You might be able to switch back and forth pretty quickly, but... Study after study shows that that's not very effective. And you are not doing two things at the same time. You can't even listen to two conversations at the same time. It's impossible. They've, yeah, they've tried, they've tried. It doesn't work. But God can. Who can comprehend that God hears the prayers of millions at the same time? And not only that, but he is uniquely emotionally invested in each one. 
He feels differently toward each of us at the same time. He can sympathize with the brokenhearted while rejoicing with the exceedingly glad. The emotional complexity of God is just, it's just completely beyond anything we can comprehend, which is why we read in Isaiah, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Most theologians, these are people who study the Bible, that's what they do, who are committed to affirming all the Bible has to say without ignoring any of it, trying desperately not to import their own philosophies and assumptions on the text, reconcile these truths that God desires all to be saved but only chooses to save some by concluding that God has different types of will, different expressions of his will. We can rightly say it's God's will for you and me and for all people to obey his commands, right? To not murder, for instance. That is God's will. Do not murder. It's commandment. But it was also God's will for Jesus to die for your sins. He was murdered for you. Truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Was it God's will for Jesus to be unjustly crucified at the hands of sinful men who lied about him in a fake trial, who spat on him, who beat him, and who hated him? Yes, it was his plan predestined to take place. But we could just as rightly say that God hates sin and his will is for our obedience and for righteousness. Hear this quote from John Piper. The scriptures lead us again and again to to affirm that God's will is sometimes spoken of as an expression of his moral standards for human behavior, and sometimes as an expression of his sovereign control, even over acts that are contrary to that standard. His thoughts are above our thoughts. But in the end, what I can say to everyone in this room and to everyone I meet with complete sincerity is that Jesus died for your sins and that he sincerely invites you. He wants you to come to him. To come to him, just as the next verses say, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is a sincere invitation from God. Question four. My last question. What is the right response to these truths? And my answer to that is to worship. Worship God for who he is. God cannot help but be God. It's actually in his name. Revealed to Moses in the burning bush, I am who I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. He is who he is and he cannot be anyone else. He is sovereign over all things. It can't 
be another way. So be like the little child. Be the child who loves the father because the father loves him. Brothers and sisters, in the pre-Christian world, in the pagan world, the assumption was that there were powerful gods to be feared and to be appeased who could really care less about us, about lowly mortals. That arbitrary authority of the despot was a threat not only from earthly thrones, but from heavenly ones as well. And there was no Magna Carta that could protect you from it. But that is not the sovereign rule of our God. To the praise of his glorious grace, our God loves us. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, not wishing that any would perish. And his love has been proven to us in the most astounding way possible. He gave up his precious son for you. The punishment deserved for every sin that you've ever committed was received by Jesus on the cross. The immeasurable weight of suffering, equivalent to an eternity in hell, was experienced by Christ so that we could be washed clean, so that we could obtain the inheritance that his perfect life deserved. I didn't even have time to go into the last verse where we see um, the intimacy and the unity of the Father and the Son. Jesus is the perfect revelation of the Father. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father, as he says in John. And Christ suffered for you. He died for you. There is nothing more that God could do to convince you that he loves you and that he has your ultimate good in mind. And I, for one, am so thankful that a God like that is on the throne. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you know the hearts of everyone in this room. Lord, and I know that you are inviting each of us to know you, to come to you who are weary. Lord, we know that Paul himself was one of the most proud, arrogant men in Israel, wise and understanding in his own eyes, and you still saved him. You still revealed yourself and lavished your grace upon him to the praise of your glorious grace, Lord. And I pray that in this room, you would reveal your truth to everyone here, that by your spirit, you would convict us of our need for you, that you would convict us of the truthfulness of the gospel, that our eyes would be opened and that we would see that it is true that you are good, that you are worthy of all praise and all glory and all, and all honor and that eternal dominion is yours and that it is a good thing. Lord, we do not understand your ways. You are above us. But we worship you and we thank you for proving to us that you love us. Thank you in Jesus' name. The following message was given by Jeff Shinella, a pastoral intern at Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.